Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well, will you put us out of our misery? We all want to know. Have you bought a tricycle? No, it doesn't, certainly doesn't. It doesn't happen that quickly. It's going to take some time. It's there's a sort of cross departmental committee looking at <laughs> looking at it and assessing the sort of viability, cost, you know, output, uh, productivity. This, this, this sounds very much like you're kicking it into the long grass. Prime no, Minister. I think it began in the very long grass, and then it sort of moved to the sort of short to medium grass. Actually, I'd now, say. In case people didn't hear us talking about this on last week's episode, this is your your wife is very keen yes. for you to get a tricycle because yes. you have your fears about cycling, but yes. those stability issues yes. uh, are improved by the three wheels. And what are your? Well, we don't know that we don't know that they're improved. Actually, we just think there will be. I, th- I think there will be. Yeah. Now th- there was. Uh, it was brought to our attention this week that Giles Brandreth. Oh, no, I know exactly as if I wasn't right to enough. <laughs> I wasn't enough doubt already. No, no, no offense to Giles Brandreth. I mean, so you, you know, you don't I mean, want to be more Brandreth. Well, I don't know. I don't. I mean, do I want to become sort of tricycles and rude jumpers? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't he famous for wearing funny jumpers? Yes, or but that- when he was when he was on, I don't know if it was TVAM or whatever he was on, the viewers used to knit him jumpers and he would wear them. And maybe we could get a thing going with the podcast. Were they funny shaped carrots or? or- I, I think humorous in the in the category of humorous jumpers. But yeah. wouldn't that be great if reasons to be cheerful listeners started knitting for you? Yeah, maybe that's true. And actually, look, I don't. I feel bad now about Giles Brandreth because I don't. You know, I don't have any objections to Giles Brandreth. I think he's a conservative, but uh, you know, I don't. I don't I don't sort of, I just, I just, well, the, he, look, at least he leaned in, in the picture I saw, the video I saw, he leaned into his tricycleness, didn't he? Yeah. And I think, I think that would be a good way for you to go if you, if you do decide to take the plunge. Well, you could sort of paint it and say, you know, well, it, 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 my <laughs> wife has a vision for this. Let, let, let me just put it that way. Um, Can you tell us any more about your wife's vision? No, I, I think not. I think it's to see whether the vision comes to fruition or not. Um, I'm, I'm less cold on it than I was, put it that way. And, and the, the lis- listener encouragement has definitely helped. So, so keep it coming on the old, on the old tricycles. Maybe I could like set up on a tricycle and have a mobile make your own sandwich stand. <laughs> <laughs> combining, combining, you know, different passions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something else I was going to ask you about is, have you had the call from LBC now that they've got rid of Nigel Farage? Sadly not, no. You're a, a former LBC presenter of sorts? Yes. But what, what, um, was, what was the thing you did as a teenager on LBC? It was called Young London. It began with a thing called Jellybone, which was a sort of phone-in programme for young, precocious children. And did, did, you used to, did you used to call up? 
Yes, I did. And then, and then, and then, Young London was more. They'd send you out to go and review a film or a play, and then three tunes, <laughs> three <laughs> new releases. I mean, I was very bad on the old pop music, as you can imagine. Um, but fortunately, all the tapes have been destroyed by me. So I would, I'd love to hear this. And you'd be listening to the radio, and you'd call in and, and join in with the programs. And they clearly no. thought this, this, this kid is quite eccentric. Or well, no, no. What happened was that the Jellybone was the original program. Then that got got rid of. And then there was a program called Young London on Sunday afternoon, which presumably was trying to sort of appeal to a younger audience or whatever, uh, or fulfilling some re- educational remit. And they w- then had a revolving set of people doing reviews. And what did the other kids at school think of the fact that you were doing it? Well, th- no, most of them didn't know anything about it, but occasionally I get people sort of say to me, oh, I heard you on LBC. I, I, I love doing it. I used to ring up my dad from a red t- t- telephone box as I'd left to say, how did you think it went? And would he give you an honest, honest critique? No, I don't think so. I think he'd just say it was very good. Well, if... if uh... If anybody out there, it's highly unlikely, but if there are uh, people listening to this who think, I might have tapes from LBC from the mid-80s. Destroy them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, contact Ed first, and yeah, he'll, exactly. he'll buy them off you. Yeah, oh, exactly. Feel free to email uh, through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. So should we talk about what we're talking about on this week's show? Yes. This week we're talking about how to ensure a just transition for workers in high-carbon industries – the idea of a just transition, protecting workers and communities affected by the move to a zero carbon economy, has obviously been part of the climate discussion for a while. But but the urgency of it, Jeff, has been has been sharpened given the threat that many industries are facing from the current crisis. And we're exploring a really fascinating bit of history from the 1970s, when workers at Lucas Aerospace, whose jobs were at risk, come up with an alternative plan for how to use their skills to produce other things. And indeed, they were ahead of their time on on low carbon. We're talking to Phil Asquith, one of the workers who came up with the plan, about the lessons it offers us today. Then we're talking to Spanish Deputy Prime Minister Teresa Rivera. She was actually a, a colleague of mine when I was Climate Change Secretary. In 2018, she negotiated a transition agreement to support workers through the closure of Spain's coal mines. We'll be asking her about that agreement and also about how her government's just transition plan is driving their recovery from coronavirus. And then finally, we'll be talking to Tim Page from the TUC just about how we make sure that that just transition happens, the risks of not doing so, and actually the vision, the positive vision of the future, if we do. Great. So uh, so before all that, what's your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, I think you... Uh, have a lot of responsibility for my reason to be cheerful because you have brought together the generations because we were chatting on the phone um the other day about my son sam really and daniel but but particularly sam getting into chess and you said that your dad had been into chess in a big way and had engaged in correspondence chess well blow me down if correspondence chess is not now going on between sam and jeff lloyd brackets senior close brackets I think last time I checked, they were on move 15. The verdict from Sam is that your dad is, quote unquote, very good. Uh, he is actually a master, isn't he? A chess master. Yes. And, yeah. Your you grade goes above a certain number. And I think a couple of years ago, his grade went above the number to be qualified as a master. Well, here's the thing what I found sort of incredibly um, impressive about your dad, which is I said to Sam, why don't, why don't you just play him on the computer? Because the way they're playing is they're emailing each other the moves. 
And he said, oh, no, no, he can't do that. He's got 28 games going on at once. Yeah, that sounds about right. When I was a kid, so he was a postman and he was in the, the Postal Workers Correspondence Chess League. And we were, our house would be full of these bits of cards, which were diagrams of chess boards. And he would, they were little postcards and he would write his move down and then send it off to somebody else. And then, you know, that person would post their move back a few days later. So this is very high tech compared to what you used to do when I was little. I'm imagining like a, it's like a scene from the West Wing, you know, your dad in like the situation room with 28, <laughs> with, with 28 screens all round, you yeah. know, with the different moves going on. Like I sort it's, of got it's a, not bad, but imagine it more now. Imagine it as the uh, as the box room of a terraced house in Macclesfield. Well, you know, with a bit of situation room thrown in. <laughs> oh, that's great! And what and what's your reason to be cheerful? My utensil drawer is open. Oh my god! Open for business. How did it? How did that happen? Well, uh, the, the regular listeners will know that just as we went into lockdown. Not just um, regular listeners. I mean, like and, it, you and know, followers on yeah, Twitter yeah. Will, will know that. Um, I, I went to get something out of the kitchen utensil drawer. Yeah. And it wouldn't open. I made a video yeah. of this. It went. Uh, it went. You know, uh, around like wildfire on on Twitter. It wouldn't and, open. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. And ooh, ooh. Yeah. And I've been uh, unable to use anything in there ever since. Anyway, so the other day, I'll yes. try and keep this story as yes. short as possible. Uh, the fire alarm started beeping in the middle of the night. You know, to change the batteries. Yes. And I'm just about beep- with you. So, and, and this was driving Sarah insane. Yeah. She couldn't sleep. Yeah. It was going off every 30 seconds. Well, as it would, yeah. I had at it with a screwdriver. I couldn't get the thing off. Uh, yes. And I somehow broke it. Yes. <laughs> so, I know so that we, feeling, yes. So we had to get someone round to fix it. Yes. Which is what I'd been planning to do with the utensil drawer, but I was going to wait until, you know, way after lockdown but since he was here anyway i said would you mind having a look at the utensil drawer so he he did and what had happened is a a knife not only had had wedged itself in the corner of the drawer but it was sticking through the bottom of the drawer so somehow as if he was arthur withdrawing excalibur from the rock uh, he managed to get this knife out and then he managed to get the drawer open and it's been an incredibly joyful moment i I don't know what i've done without my potato peelers these past 77 days i mean that is absolutely brilliant and you know there's only one loose end that now needs tying up go on the end of the leisure center story not gonna be tied up any time soon reasons to be cheerful with ed Millibands and jeff lloyd well to, to start off and, and get some idea of what the future of a just transition could look like we're going to look to the past and an extraordinary chapter of history from the mid 1970s the lucas plan and to talk to us about that we have phil asquith who is a former member of the lucas aerospace shop stewards combine um phil hello you mean you must have been a boy wonder in this back then you must have been pretty young i was uh, that's why i'm one of the last guys standing now i was in my 20s then i actually grew a beard like yours so i could look older when i was negotiating with management <laughs> it certainly works as far as jeff's concerned it makes him look older <laughs> yeah yeah I, I grow it so that ed can relate to me because he's significantly older than than i am um so before we start talking about the the lucas plan itself and what the proposals were can you just tell us what what was lucas aerospace and what what were they up to at this period in history in the early and mid 70s okay uh, lucas aerospace was part of the lucas industries company and it made systems 
for military and civilian aircraft. It made uh, combustion chambers. It made uh, all types of actuators. It made generating systems. Any system on an aeroplane, military or civilian, Lucas Aerospace and our members did that. So that's Lucas Aerospace. And and before we get into the plan itself, can you give us a bit of background and, and tell us what were the circumstances uh, that, that led to it coming about? In the late 60s, early 70s, jobs were hemorrhaging from the UK economy at an alarming rate, uh, one reason or another, uh, technology-driven. And then we had the energy crisis, which quadrupled oil prices. And then, of course, Labour was elected twice in 1974 on a manifesto which included defence cuts. Now, Lucas Aerospace's business was 70% military contracts. So trade union representatives' first concern, of course, is for members' job losses. So the Combined Shop Shoes Committee um, began to address the problem of job loss and it's just worth saying um, it, 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 briefly what the combine was and where it fitted and where it didn't, because without the combine, there would never have been a Lucas plant. So 60s and 70s, as the multinationals became multinationals and globalisation occurred, the official trade union structure didn't change. It was still based on the 19th century craft traditions. So... The structure wasn't fit for purpose. Therefore, combines grew up, which would represent all of the unions, manual and staff, across the plants. And what was your role at Lucas Aerospace at the time? Yeah, I was. Um, I ended up as a chartered mechanical engineer um, a little later, but I was a research engineer uh, doing R&D on jet engine fuel systems. But then I got, um, I showed enthusiasm and then uh, I sort of uh, ascended the ranks and ended up as secretary and then chairman of the Combine Committee at Burnley, representing 3,500 highly skilled members. And the, these concerns um, uh, around defence contracts and subsequent unemployment, what, what did you do with those concerns? Right. The Combine had endless discussions. We were looking in the face, really substantial job losses. And remember, uh, two years ago, Rolls-Royce had crashed, then in 71, which was then nationalised by Ted Heath. So the the fear of job losses was very real indeed. Um, Various companies were going to the government asking for bailouts. And we looked uh, within the Combine at various strategies which have been tried to save jobs. We looked at sit-ins, workings, occupations, nationalizations, campaigns for retention of existing product lines. But none of those seemed sustainable as far as we were concerned. And we came to the conclusion fairly rapidly that a struggle based on the continued manufacture of products that no one wanted was doomed to failure. And that was particularly true of the weapons industry. So uh, we then requested a meeting with Tony Benn when he was Secretary of State for Industry in November 1974 to discuss the issue. And Ben pointed out that he didn't have uh, the power to nationalise Lucas Aerospace. What do you remember about those meetings with Tony Benn? Um, th- there was one classic one, and there are some lovely images about But what I remember most of all 
was the night out we had before in London. So none of us look on the photographs in exactly peak condition. <laughs> and I, I include myself in that. I'm sitting on the window ledge behind him. But what, but what was unique about that meeting was that there were combined representatives, about 19 others, I think. There were no civil servants and there were no national trade union officials. So it was just the combine versus Tony. And he walked in with a pint pot, blue and white striped uh, pipe. And it was absolutely riveting. Charming man. And he, he, his main point was, you've got the long lead time of defence contracts. Go away. Talk to the members you represent and anybody else who will help you. And look at what you might make if the weapons systems are cancelled. And that really was what kicked off the whole Lucas plan. So go on then, tell us, tell us about the proposals in the plan. Well, um, they were quite ahead of their time, weren't they, Phil? I mean, they were the, the, wind turbines they were. and solar panels and things which in those yeah. days were seen as sort of, you know, kind of you know, head in the clouds and are now seen as very, very, very sort of mainstream. Yes, in fact, Lucas Management actually described uh, our proposals as being in the realm of the Brown Bread and Sandals Brigade, uh, which made us laugh, actually. And in their reply to the plan, as far as wind turbines were concerned, they said they saw no large-scale application for wind turbines in the UK. So in the plan, uh, we divided the products into six product areas. Uh, We majored on renewables as you say, Ed, wind turbines, hybrid power packs, solar drives, and that kind of thing. And sorry to interject, Phil, but that wasn't because of climate change, was it? Or was it? Uh, Partly. If you look in the plan, climate change is referred to as thermal pollution. You know how these terms change? So, So people were acutely aware of thermal pollution and CO2 even then. So it was to, it was to an extent driven by that, the need for alternative energy. But maybe the, the bigger driver was the quadrupling in oil prices. So all of the stuff that came together um, is now everyday technology. And what I usually point out is that our members were spot on at technological forecasting. So when people say that workers don't have the ability to do these sorts of things, uh, the answer is there in the Lucas plan. Yeah, I was going to ask about this, this the, the concept of socially useful production. Uh, tell us about that and, and how that play, played a part in the plan. Well, I'll tell you the first time I, I ever heard the phrase, um, we had a big meeting of the Combine nationally after the meeting with Tony Benn to decide exactly what to do. And it was a difficult one because no one had ever done an alternative plan before. There were no trade manual, trade union manuals on how to draw up a plan. So we decided that the only way forward would be to draw up a unique plan on our own that said, basically, if defence workers' skills were no longer required to make weapons, they should be used to benefit society. So if you aren't going to make things that kill people or seriously detract from their quality of life... The other end of the spectrum is you then need to look at making things that enhance their lives. The example that I always give 
of a socially useful product is uh, advanced kidney dialysis machines. Believe it or not, Lucas Aerospace had a division of the company that made kidney dialysis machines, and they were wanting to close the plant as part of their rationalisation. Now, at that time, the Kidney Patient Sufferers Association pointed out that 3,000 people were dying each year for want of a kidney machine. So the company said, well, we don't want to make kidney machines because there's no profit in them, but we want to make military because there's more profit. So socially useful products are at the other end of the spectrum. So, Phil, this is the sort of the kind of bad end to the cliffhanger. Um, what ended up happening to the plan? How, how did company management, government and the unions respond to it? We launched the plan in July 1976 and we were absolutely staggered over the next few months at the international and national support we, we received. Uh, you'd expect CND and peace organisations to support it because of the transition from arms to socially useful products. But the support came from all over the place. So massive support. We even got a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. But we didn't get that. But what we did get was the Right Livelihood Award presented in Stockholm. And that's often referred to, they don't like it, but as the Alternative Peace Prize. Basically, we got everyone on our side. Absolutely everyone. There was something in the plan for for everybody. Uh, But then our side, right, the Labour government, the national officials formed this unholy alliance with Lucas Management. And they basically said, well, the Combine, by its nature, is an unofficial organisation. So uh, from higher up in the labour movement, the company were given the green light to stop talking to us. The outcome was uh, the government, the national officials, did a deal with Lucas Management to give them even more taxpayers' money to reduce jobs so there was no support at all despite um you know from from our own side tell us what happened to lucas aerospace then uh they contracted um parts of it were sold off and lucas aerospace like lucas industries ceased to exist uh in the 1990s they always told us that the best job of chance of security of employment was manufacturing what we always manufactured. But interestingly, I'm here talking about the plan 40-odd years later, and they folded in in the late 1990s. I think, Phil, one thing that is very striking about your story about the Lucas plan is the role of workers themselves in this process. And, 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 And maybe that is a very important lesson for us now in the future just just say something finally then about about that about about what lessons you draw about that and how they're relevant to today when the combine decided to do the lucas plan we took it back to the sites to mass meetings to explain it to the members and to get them to endorse the decision which they did we also told them it would require work and ideas on their part So we devised the questionnaire, sent it around the sites. Each site had uh, Lucas Plan committees, and uh, they were responsible for asking the members to look around them, audit their skills, audit their facilities, and to come up with ideas and suggestions as to what they might work on 
if they didn't work on weapons. And from that, we were able to distill dozens and dozens of alternative products. People whose pet products have been squashed on by management, uh, this massive outpouring of creativity. And do you think that has important lessons for today? Yeah. Basically, for today, it shows that the people who are running the place have the greatest knowledge and the greatest uh, set of solutions to the problem. Uh, it's a great example of, uh, of bottom-up. And uh, it's for that reason that the film which Steve Sprung made a while ago that was showed at the uh, London Film Festival a couple of years ago is called The Plan That Came From The Bottom-Up. Okay, Phil Asquith, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. To talk about some of the challenges of the green transition, uh, particularly in this time of coronavirus, I'm delighted to say that we're joined from Spain by Teresa Ribera, who's the Deputy Prime Minister of Spain and Minister for the Ecological Transition and Demographic Challenge. And she and I were both uh, climate ministers uh, in the in the late 2000s. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. It's so nice to see you again. It is very nice to see you again, too. I remember those fantastic times in Copenhagen. So uh, I think that uh, we always have challenges and now we have new ones. Exactly. And, and we want to come on to talk about how Spain is approaching the issue of the green recovery. But, but first, we wanted to ask you about something you did when you were in government in 2018, which is the transition agreement for the mining industry in Spain. Because I think all of us uh, in our different countries are thinking, how do we how do we not just create green jobs in the future, but how do we deal with the jobs that are no longer necessarily going to be appropriate in the in the green era? Tell us a little bit about that transition agreement. I think that a very important lesson I had drawn from our past times is that when dealing with um, new challenges and new opportunities, it is also very important to take care of those fearing the change. So we needed a phase-out strategy, providing uh, support and confidence to those people that felt that uh, everything could be horrible because the very uh, relevant uh, subjects of uh, concern for them uh, were not being were not being responded. So what about my salary, my job? Uh, do I have to migrate because I cannot live anymore here and so on? So what we show along the years was that uh, um, the previous government did not feel like anticipating the change and creating the uh, the alternatives in terms of jobs, in, in investment, uh, industrial alternatives in the areas where they all knew that coal mining and coal uh, thermal coal plants were going to 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 be out of the system in the by the year 2020 uh, so we started to work with the trade unions and with the companies what um, we tried to 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 insist on is that we were going to be very honest that of course the deadline was there but that we were going to stress all the uh, solidarity policies that may um, identify alternatives in terms of uh, industrial investments and so on, but uh, alternatives that needed to be supported and needed to be decided also with uh, with with their own uh, their own ideas their own uh, decisions because uh, it is very important to be part of the solution as citizen as neighbor as worker not just being subject to whatever it is decided elsewhere and i think i'm right in saying that the um amount of money was was in the hundreds of millions of euros in terms of compensation for people 
um, and retraining. Talk to us about the role of unions and workers in that process uh, with government. Now, I think that this is a very important issue. Of course, we need public money being invested in all of this because I think that the modern society needs to be solidar with those suffering these transformations that are needed for this society, for the wealth and the health of the society. And, but at the same time, um, uh, the governments are not the ones to decide and to pay everything. We need workers and we need a uh, business being part of the solution. So something that it, that worked uh, reasonably well was the involvement of the unions and the involvement of the utilities. Uh, even in the case of uh, one of the companies behind uh, um, the coal mining uh, activities, they, they decided to be part of the solution and to diversify some of their business in the same area. And to certain extent, to be creative, innovative. They, um, they invested in a plant where they, they produce fertilizers out of the coal with some other, I don't know what. We facilitated some um, uh, regulation uh, incentives. So, for instance, the access to the grid. If, it, if the plant was going to be replaced, the coal plant was going to be replaced by some a, uh, alternatives with renewable energy so that uh, the, the investment was going to stay in the same village or in the same area where the coal plant was going to be phased out. But with the utilities, we, we did more or less the same thing. We said, okay, you have paid much money out of uh, this during decades and you are going to stay as a relevant player in the electricity system in Spain. So it could be good if you can think on how you can help the people that has been working for you for decades, the families that have been working for you for decades, to provide some, some prosperity in the same regions. And then the utilities decided to invest in uh, new capacities and skills for professional work to take on board all the people that had been working for them uh, in the moment that the plants were going to be closed. I think that the involvement of the local players has been very, very, very important. And tell us where, how it's gone. What, do you know what's happened to those workers? Have they found other jobs? Has that been successful? How would you how would you describe to our listeners whether this just transition has has worked? Well, we are in the middle of our pathway. I mean, I, it's not something that you can replace from one day to the next one with no problem. But for instance, in um, in the in one of these areas where the coal plant is going to to be definitely closed uh, by the end of this month, uh, um, we made this public call and we identify almost 100 new projects. Some of them very interesting and not all of them in the energy sector. So at the same time, uh, all the dismantling uh, of the coal plants or of the coal mines uh, still needs uh, many people working in the area. So that was one of the conditions. You comp you utility, you mining company should count on these people in order to uh, to dismantle or to recover uh, the area where there used to be a mine or where there used to be a coal plant. So it's, um, it's not magic, it's not perfect, there is still much to do, but I think that what we tried to, to do was uh, to be very, very honest. We were not going to tell lies or to tell promises that were not going to be fulfilled. We What we were um, offering was to be honest in the exercise of compiling the different possibilities and to, to try to match the different uh, uh, ideas, supports to, to go forward. I wondered if I could ask you about the, the bigger picture and 
about how this agreement agreement with the mining industry um how it fits with your broader approach to just transition well i think it was very important it was very symbolic so of course coal mining was not a very relevant in terms of workers uh, because the the coal mine the coal mining phase out had been taking um, shape for a long time already but it was very symbolic and it was very emotional for the areas uh, where the coal mines still existed and um, i think that it was uh, it was the first very relevant step the second thing to think about was um, what about other industries that uh, could go through similar transformations. And uh, the main message was, uh, of course, this decarbonization of the economy means deep changes in our economy, in, in the structural econ- changes in the economy. But um, as much as we can anticipate, uh, um, the better we can uh, identify and build other options so to, to, to lower the impact of, uh, of, the, of the transformation and to take full advantage of the opportunities. And I think that this has worked. I mean, uh, uh, in terms of the social understanding of why this is important and to what extent the full involvement of the different players was important, it has worked. And how central will will that idea of just transition be when you think about guiding Spain's recovery after the current crisis? Luckily, we have settled the basis, the basic uh, ground to facilitate this transformation in the coal-related um, activities. Because now what we see is that uh, there could be many other sectors of the economy saying, hey, I have realised that certainly my model was not going to last and I would be happy to have a similar support. One of the elements that um, we try to push is also uh, rethinking what investment in tourism may be. So, of course, it is uh, uh, nice buildings and nice landscapes, but it is also retrofitting those buildings and um, allowing a sustainability contest for mobility services for uh, uh, coastal areas that uh, are compatible with the, with the reference on climate impacts and storms and so on. So I think that uh, this, this could um, drive us into a very interesting uh, time in front of us on, on where and how uh, identify the, the priorities. Construction is not the same anymore, of course. It should be retrofitting or resilience of infrastructures. So I think that this type of, of uh, references are much more uh, in people's mind than um, they used to be. And how is it politically balancing the, the, the need for quick recovery from the current crisis with the long-term climate goals? How are you finding that? Well, I think that this is the more delicate discussion. We know that we need a quick um, stimulus uh, for uh, new jobs, which is not exactly the same than recovering the old jobs. We need to... The people having old jobs, uh, having new jobs. So, yeah, that, that's the, the first thing. The second thing is that uh, um, if, it, it, if it has to be massive... Mm, and if uh, the most vulnerable people um, are still people that uh, do 
did did used to work in traditional sectors as construction or uh, bars and uh, tourism and so on. We need to identify what what may be the the um, the new conditions to ensure that it works better. So I think that um, these are the the references that we need to put in place. So to ensure that the corridor uh, that we build between the very short-term urgent needs of recovery does much and does facilitate the long-term of the full decarbonization of the economy by 2050. I think that this is, this is quite important. Last question, Teresa. You and I were both uh, environment ministers uh, more than a decade ago. Um, you are uh, back in a bigger role, but but also covering the ecological uh, transition. I, I'm the shadow minister for climate change as well as business. Um, are you? This is maybe an unfair question. Are you more optimistic than you were a decade ago? Less optimistic about the same? Well, I, I think I, I I could respond in a way you would probably use in the uh, in front of the similar question i think that uh, um, it depends on one side you've got more people understanding that <laughs> that you have to do this pathway you have to go through this and um, and at the same time uh, well it's horrible the ppms uh, go up yeah. go up go up uh, still is much better oh, 1.5 yeah. than 2 and 2 is better than 2.5 and 2.5 is better than 3 so i think that the, there's no possible alternative answer to <laughs> to keep on going and keep on working full of energy it, as shadow and as as, as as working as official both well, that's very, very good advice. T- Teresa Ribera, thank you so much for sparing the time and joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks. A pleasure. Finally, to get an idea of what just transition could look like here in the UK, we're going to speak to Tim Page, who is a senior policy officer at the TUC. Uh, Tim, hello. How's lockdown been treating you? Oh, lockdown's not too bad. I'm luckier than most. I've got a garden and I've got some fresh air and I've managed to exercise. So, uh, so yeah, I'm OK. You know, obviously thinking about people in a more difficult position than me. I'm OK. Thanks, Jeff. We want to start by asking you, sort of, overall, what do you think a just transition could look like uh, for the from a union movement point of view? So we think of a just transition as a move away from uh, a high fossil fuel economy to a net zero economy, uh, but doing that in a way that it creates great new jobs um, for the people in the fossil fuel economy, in the communities where they live. I mean, that's the key issue for us. So um, industrial strategy is absolutely essential to that. A government investment is absolutely essential to that. Um, uh, the private sector, I think, would lead any initiative, but the private sector would need you know, government support, uh, government incentives, perhaps tax incentives otherwise, in order to move into those communities. Um Whenever there's an industrial disruption, um, digitalization is happening at the moment, and that's a similar kind of industrial disruption. Um, whenever there have been disruptions in the past, they tend to create uh, more new jobs than they displace. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that the jobs that they create um, tend to be in different communities for people with different education and skill levels. Um, and that's led us to this situation where we have an overheat in London and the southeast. And But the industrial communities of the UK have gradually, over the decades, have struggled more and more and more. So a just transition for us, would a key part of that would mean that 
the new jobs and the new industries go to those communities that need the most. And Tim, you made a really interesting point there about where the jobs are. Is it also the case that one of the challenges is that the the high carbon jobs that that will over time be replaced tend to be unionised, pretty well paid, quite a lot of security, including pension security? That's absolutely right. And uh, when we published our Just Transition statement last year, this is available on the TC website, one of the key asks or the key points we made were that new jobs have to be good jobs because green startups, you know, really exciting. Um, everybody loves the idea. Uh, but we need to ensure that those jobs are unionised, that they pay properly, that they offer good terms and conditions, uh, good pensions, as you say, because the jobs that we're losing um, were unionised you know, some of the many decades ago. And we did our, our job as trade unions in ensuring that we got good terms and conditions for the workers there. So we need, obviously, to ensure that, that the new jobs match those standards. Let, let's talk about the uh, incentives and support that you mentioned. We were talking to Teresa uh, just now about the transition deals in Spain. What, what kind of support? would you like to see for workers in high carbon industries to use the skills or retrain for lower carbon work? So in a way, this fits in with skills policy more generally. You know, we know that the job for life has ended. We know that workers will need to reskill probably several times in their lives. So, you know, investment in skills is clearly crucial. Um, Vocational skills have seen far less investment than uh, than other types of education. Throughout my working life, we've been talking about parity of esteem between academic and vocational. Can we have parity of esteem without parity of funding? But certainly we need increased funding in those uh, skills. And you know, some of those will be about adding on skills that workers have already got. So if we're talking about the automotive industry, moving from the combustion engine to uh, battery powered engines, it might be that 70 percent of making that car still requires the same skills. We don't need to completely reskill those workers. We need to give them the additional skills they need to make the battery operated cars. But some industries, you know, over the course of a number of years, perhaps a couple of decades, will disappear completely. And if the industries we attract into those communities um, are completely different industries, then we will need a completely different skill set. So, you know, the the pitch will be mixed. Uh, I think alongside skills, we need to talk about the benefit system, because if somebody needs to take a year out of work in order to retrain, if that person's got a mortgage or, you know, a family and a couple of kids to support, you know, give it up in paid employment for a year um, is a really difficult thing to do. So how can a benefit system that was developed post-war, uh, assuming full employment, assuming that the jobs that people did would last them a lifetime, how does that adapt to this new world of, you know, people stepping in and stepping out of different career paths throughout their lives? We talked to Teresa Rivera just now tim and she's talked about the spanish approach to the coal industry and how they did the just transition are there examples either from around the world or from history where you think actually you know that's a good model that's a good example that's been it's been done well um there aren't many in the uk i have to say it's not something that we do so well 
the trade union movement psychologically scarred by the closure of the coal industry. You know, in the 1980s, this was an industry employing hundreds of thousands of workers where there was no just transition uh, and the coal mines were in communities where there was no other employment. So the whole of the communities died and those communities still suffer today. So, you know, we know how to do it badly, but we do need to learn from um, best practice in how to do it well. You know, and I think, again, the industrial strategy piece is really, really important because, um, you know, a, a, a company that's making new technology, new green technology, you know, if it's a multinational uh, company, it could come to the UK, but it could come could go to Germany or it could go to Denmark or to, 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 to countries that have you know, proper industrial strategies and well-funded apprenticeship systems and nimble government that can move into support. So I think those things are really, really important. And if we get those things in, it makes the private sector much more enthusiastic about going into those communities. I suppose for us, it was very striking uh, talking earlier to Phil about the Lucas plan that we often talk about these transitions and the workers are a bit left out of it in terms of their voice. What's very striking about the Lucas plan was it was very much led by the workers to talk to us about that aspect of this the way in which the voices of the people actually affected are are so crucial it's really interesting because when we were putting together our statement we drafted it at the tuc's head office in london but then we took it around some of the workplaces that where you know they were at the sharp end their workforce were at the sharp end of this change we didn't find climate deniers. We didn't find people to, who tried to say this is not really a big problem or try to gloss over the issues. But the attitude of workers when this is something that's done with them is very different to the attitudes of workers when this is something that's done to them, where they're given some kind of ownership. So in the TUC statement, we call for transition agreements uh, negotiated between the employer and the workforce that could cover everything from, you know, skills and uh, you know restructuring of the workplace um, terms and conditions equal opportunities but again there's in, there are interesting examples from digitalization which is happening you know a transformation that's happening at the same time a couple of years ago I visited Airbus Deutschland based in Hamburg and they have an agreement that's been reached between the company and the works council um, and the agreement says that no worker loses their job as a result of the transition and no worker suffers a cut in pay. And wow. from those two principles, they have to work out how they're going to restructure the company. Wow. So is that deliverable? It obviously is deliverable. Think, for a company like Airbus that you know, employs thousands of workers, it's, it's going to be easier because – you know, perhaps 200 people a year would retire. So as people retire, they, they wouldn't necessarily be replaced. So, you know, things like that would help a lot. But it also requires, you know, the German co-determination system, the social partnership, whereby it is the responsibility of the union to say, well, we will be flexible in this way and that way and another way in order to meet that challenge. So it requires a very different kind of dialogue uh, between the management and and the workforce and you know the TUC's passionate supporter of social dialogue um, you know it creates a different kind of conversation between the company and the workforce but we feel that you know this is an idea that whose time has come especially you know given the real nature of the challenges we face at the moment with just transition and uh, climate change but also digitalization and of course COVID-19. And in fact that takes me on to the question I was then going to ask him which is you know 
something that seemed like an important uh, priority, uh, getting the, the just transition right, has now been superpowered by some of the difficulties that industries like aviation, aerospace have been going through during this crisis. Uh, just talk to us a little bit about how this kind of sharpens the, the, the necessity of this of thinking through and acting on this just transition. I mean, obviously, the the short-term priority is to protect as many people's jobs as possible to ensure that people's livelihoods, well, we know that people's livelihoods are already being very, very badly affected. So, But damage limitation is clearly the top priority. Um, but looking further ahead, if we are going to rebuild our economy, if there's going to be uh, support packages, um, uh, government investment um, in terms of you know, the medium to longer term, let's make those investments green investments. So, uh, you know, infrastructure, what about cycle lanes and pedestrianising major towns and cities as a as a, a place for government to put its, its spending on infrastructure? You know, for example, um, I mean, you mentioned aviation and aerospace, you know, this, I mean, people are still going to fly, um, but we'd hope that people would fly less if we get... Uh, more kind of high street rail in. I know in the aerospace industry, they're talking about, I mean, I heard a conversation last week about an aerospace scrappage scheme so that as newer planes come on board, you know, that burn leaner fuels, they're, they're better. I'm not suggesting aerospace, uh, that the aviation is, you know, as, as clean as we would like it to be, but it could be cleaner. And, you know, and all of these things need to be explored. And, and Tim, let's end on this point, which is just spell out for us if you like the two paths the risks of getting it wrong which we remember so well in constituencies like mine in terms of what happened to the coal industry and the potential benefits of getting it right well the risks of getting it wrong ed are you know a generation of people without opportunities without hope you know communities where the industry disappears and no new industry comes along in its place especially communities that are built on one particular industrial sector that's lost. You know, the risk is, you know, generations of, you know, not not people not having jobs, people not having opportunities, people not having good lives. Uh, and that can be compared with, you know, a situation where we bring kind of great new jobs based on clean, sustainable industries into those communities uh, where the communities thrive, the communities where people want to live, the communities that people want to visit, where the private sector will work hand in hand with the public sector, you know, where the workforce is able and confident and, you know, any private sector employer would see this as a good bet to put in investment. So, you know, the two paths are so divergent, we, we simply can't afford to get this wrong. Tim Page, uh, thanks so much for joining us. That's a, both an inspiring note to end on, but also a sense of a warning as well. My pleasure. Thanks, Ed. And thanks, Jeff. So, Jeffrey. Yes, Edward. What did you think? I got especially excited uh, hearing from Phil about the Lucas plan because I'd never heard about that before. And it's it's incredible. What a great piece of history and how mind-blowing that there was this idea or set of ideas which came from the people who worked at Lucas that got worldwide attention to the extent that they were being nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. and then. They're not acted on at all. 
It's I, I yeah. can't believe that. I mean, I can believe it, but just that the, a corporation or a conglomerate or whoever Lucas was would would ig- ignore that. And I think there's a great blueprint there for the future. And definitely, they were completely visionary. I mean, I thought it was a really fascinating set of conversations. I suppose a couple of things struck me. I was really struck by what Tim said about Airbus in Germany. Yeah. You know, I mean, basically sort of that no worker would essentially lose out. I mean, it was a very, very concrete promise that he was talking about. And okay, he said that Airbus was a certain type of company. It was possible for them to do it. But I I thought that was, I mean, that's, you know, people talk about social partnership at the workplace and the role of unions and so on, but that's a very concrete thing of it. And then I suppose the second thing is... um, you know, there's this slogan which I think started with the disability movement, you're never about us without us. And I felt it was very much came through in, in what, well, I think, but I suppose what uh, Teresa, what Tim and what Phil were saying about negotiating the just transition. In other words, look, this only works if it isn't just something dreamed up in think tanks. And, you know, I've got, I'm a very great fan of think tanks, but, but is also, you know, done in collaboration and communication with the workers who are um, affected. And, and, you know, dare I say, it certainly sort of, you know, provides lessons for me in, in the job that I'm doing. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, as ever, we'd love to hear from you. Do share your thoughts on this week's episode or previous episodes, or if you've got ideas for future episodes, go to our website. It's cheerfulpodcast.com and get in touch through there. You can also sign up for our newsletter. While it's a there. brilliant newsletter. It is a great newsletter. If you're not already signed up for it, it it's going to change your entire week having this thing arrive in your inbox. Give up all your other newsletters. This is the newsletter you want. Shall we shall we delve into this week's correspondence? We had a couple of emails on this. We had one from Michelle, uh, also this from Charlie Pearson, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. At the moment, it's been good to hear about some positive ideas so we can all be a bit more hopeful about the future. Um, I've just been reading an article from the New York Times about changing the role of the police force in light of George Floyd's death. And I was thinking that it would be a really interesting topic for discussion. It brings together a whole mix of ideas about social care, health care and the penal system. And I, for one, would love to hear more about this. All the best to you and yours and Chutney. How is Chutney this week, Ed? Well, I think he's been a little bit naughty, but uh, only in a lovable way. Uh, This one comes from Rachel Byrne. Uh, The subject is recommissioning statues through art. Dear Ed and Jeff, listening to your recent Black Lives Matter podcast, I've taken on board Matthew Ryder's point to be specific in offering solutions to problems. There is a problem currently about what to do with statues of slave-owning people who built our country. I propose that a fund is created for artists to recommission or reface problematic statues. The fund should be available to all artists. In times of societal turmoil, artists' voices are needed more than ever, and it feels so important that history is not erased but reconciled with the present. I've written Sadiq Khan about this idea, but no reply yet. If you could jostle him along, that would be great. I like that idea, Rachel. I like the Interesting idea, idea that you could sort of like look at the different layers of history and different layers of the past through like public sculptures and, and monuments. That's a great I really like that. I do feel that you know, we, we did the episode on Black Lives Matter last week, but I think it's really thrown up these wider set of issue that, issues that we covered in our Empire podcast. Yeah. Um, 
a year or so ago. If, if you've if you've only been listening to podcasts more recently, it's one to go back and uh, and revisit. It's our favourite episode, isn't it? Yeah, we we still hear from people who are just discovering it for the first time and just you know hearing that conversation. And and I I just think about it was a live episode we recorded it in uh, clapham in london and i just think about in the room how few people ourselves included were taught anything really about the history of empire in school which was a good starting point for the conversation and uh, you know i think it's extraordinarily good yeah this is from cynthia bradley you'll like this cynthia says and the subject line is adult trikes she says mm. do not mock the adult trike I have a beautiful green one made for me by Robert Cycles of Croydon, and you will be amazed how many people gaze at it with envy. A particular type of young boy tends to ask if I have a differential in my back axle. In brackets, she says, I don't. You know what? I forgot to tell you this thing. Um, So Justine and I were walking uh, um, through the park, and you know I like to walk through the park, Um, uh, but this wasn't necessarily forming the basis of a speech. And <laughs> what? And what? And what did we see? But we saw somebody on a tricycle. I mean, honestly, it was like destiny, Jeff. You see, it's like when you have a baby, you start noticing babies everywhere. I think just the, by virtue of the fact that you, you, you're thinking about uh, a tricycle, you're going to start seeing a lot of tricycles. Anyway, we now. then stopped this lady and started having a conversation with her about the tricycle. She had vertigo, and this tricycle had been very. Um, helpful for her i mean it was honestly it was so weird it was like it would be laid on by you you sure it wasn't laid on by you i I couldn't possibly comment send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast oh ho 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 we're in the outro here we are what are you uh what are you watching at the moment that's that's my big Lockdown small talk with most people. I say, what, what are you watching? Uh, well, Jiri Hadji, we got to the end of Killing Eve, we got to the end of. I, I mean, honestly, Parks and Recreation is a gift that keeps on giving. I, I watched Jiri Hadji, I was a little behind you on it, but we, we finished yes. it this week and I loved it and I really loved the last episode as well. Well, it had a sort of performative aspect, didn't it? Which I wouldn't want to give it away. No, but I thought it was, be- it was beautifully, it was beautifully done. Um, and I feel like I am somebody who can cringe at the TV a lot of the time if things aren't done just right. And I thought it was perfect. It was really good. You're a new romantic. Yep, that's me. Yep. Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, all that. Exactly. Were you ever a new romantic? Not really, no. Post-punk? Neither new nor old. <laughs> uh, mm, mm. Never a goth? I wish I'd more exciting things to report about look, Let me tell but... you, I, th- I think you would look great with a goth makeover. I can really you see think? it. Yeah. If, can if some, you arrange that? Well, I'm just wondering if anybody's listened to this who's particularly adept at Photoshop. There's lots of source material of Ed on the, uh, on the internet. I think you as a goth could be a really great look for you. Yeah. Email us through the website. Should we thank our guests? I'd like to thank our guests, Phil Asquith, Teresa Rivera and Tim Page. Emma Corsham produces our podcast, Fantastic Emma Corsham, with research from Joel Pierce and backup from Joe Kenyon and Zoe Gelber. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was designed by Henry Cobb. He's been Jeffrey Lloyd. He's been Edmund Miliband. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. 
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.